Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Song of the Thin Man is over. You know, if this rampage of respectability persists, we'll have to buy you a bulletproof girdle. You're magnificent. We just have to walk ten minutes in various directions until we find the right institution. What, you've got the nose of a bloodhound. Don't let him worry you. The rest of your face looks fine. <sighs> I wouldn't know anything about Hollis. Your eyes are getting shiny, Miss Page. And your mouth's getting big, Mr. Charles. Where is he? Why don't you ask me if I killed Tommy Drake? You probably had good reason to. How about a story, Dad? Oh, no story for you tonight. You've got to get some sleep. But your stories always put me to sleep. I said I'd take that piece of... I'm going to leave you that night, brother. 
Just one word from me and that dog of mine will tear you to pieces. Well, buddy, I guess this is it. Time for that little bombshell. Tell everyone how Tommy Drake was murdered. Tell them why Fran Page was murdered. Tell them about the someone who went to her apartment. That someone is here among us now. Uh, okay, Andy, we're talking about uh, Song of the Thin Man. This is it. This is the last one. We're leaving the Thin Man station after this uh, after this film. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss it. I've had such a ball. And I have to say, just to get it all out in the open, what an exceptional experience to end this series on. This I really enjoyed this movie in particular. I thought it was a, a, a just a gem in the overall set of six. I couldn't agree more. This one was absolutely fantastic. I think one of the reasons that I ended up enjoying this one so much, it came out in 47, and you're certainly in that window of noir in this particular period of time. And of all of the films, this one feels the most like it's sharing some of that, the noir elements. Um, It certainly still has the comedy but it has this kind of this darker thread that just it it actually felt felt that way more so than many of the others. And I really enjoyed that with this one. Yeah, I think so. I think the the screenplay, you know, we had some I'll speak for myself. I had some concerns with the, the you know, the way the screenplay was architected that they weren't funny, particularly the last couple. The last one wasn't as. It's funny. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as part of the series. I thought it was great, but I don't feel like the, they captured the language and the relationship of Nick and Nora. And this one, I think, is just an absolute about face. Uh, James O'Hanlon uh, did additional dialogue. Uh, Harry Crane, additional dialogue. Dashiell Hammett. Um, I feel like the uh, Steve Fisher and Nat Parent did an exceptional job regaining the the mystique, the charm, the relationship of Nick and Nora Charles, and it just shines scene after scene after scene. It uh, it really does. It works very very well. I, I you know looking at the two of them as individual writers, Steve Fisher was very much a pulp author who was very popular and. Uh, with his pulp stories. Um, so he kind of came from that background before he kind of uh, shifted and, and gained popularity with more popular fare like Saturday Evening Post and eventually uh, Hollywood screenwriting, but was still writing this the sorts of crime stories that this fits into. So he very much is bringing that uh, into the work that he was doing. And then Nat Perrin is uh, somebody who did a lot of jokes and stuff with the Marx Brothers and uh, the the uh, film Hell's a Poppin'. He wrote that. That's something. Uh, I think he actually wrote the musical, and then uh, it was adapted into the film as well. And uh, so I think that's somebody who's bringing the comedy. And so when you pair these two, it just felt like a really natural fit as far as how they crafted this story that had the crime, had the that, like I said, the noirish elements throughout, but then also allowed the comedy to really shine in very laugh out loud ways. For sure. And I want to make sure I, I left one out. We got a story by credit from Stanley Roberts, another screenwriter behind the Kane mutiny um, uh, and others. Uh, I don't, I don't know the extent to which Stanley you know, his contributions are, are felt over Steve and Nat, but it, it is, it's, it's a movie that regains the foothold of, of Nick and Nora in the, the spirit of these movies. And it's such a surprise at the sixth movie after we've been with this character or these characters for so long now that it is still, it, it shines so brightly, I think is a, is a real, a real gift. I love it. Yeah, for sure. Well, when this film came out, this film passed. It was approved by the National Board of Review. We are in safe zone. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, I know you were concerned. The 
the song of the thin man. So first question, and we talked about this in our pre-show chat a little bit. We had a pre-show chat for our members about songs from movies that weren't necessarily musicals. This this one starts with a song. I mean, it's called Song of the Thin Man. It revolves around a case involving musicians and a, a piece of uh, uh, music that has some notes written on it, stuff like that. So it ties into the title, which was great. But there is a song which kind of fits into the period. A lot of noir films, a lot of films had songs thrown in. And this one was You're Not So Easy to Forget by Herb Magidson and Ben Oakland. Uh, Gloria Graham performs it in the film, although her voice is dubbed by Carol Arden. Did you like the song? Did you like how uh, how it it kind of kicks things off? Did it feel like a good way to start things off and fit the vibe of the movie? Uh, I guess I did, but weirdly, Andy, I can't remember it. Is but that Pete, funny? Like, it's not so easy to forget. I it, in my head. I, it turns out that's a <laughs> lot. Pretty easy. I I totally. But it's, uh, maybe it's because when she hits that refrain, it's it's just all the same note. You're not so easy to forget. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess that's why I remember at least that part. But um, and of course, it's you know Gloria Graham, who I just love so much she is performing it and she's great in the film so i guess it's not something that i had heard before it's not something that kind of lasted beyond this film and became a regular uh you know song that people still sing to this day like um you must remember this or something but i'm i'm finding like i uh, carol sloan carol sloan did it on her album i never went away in 2001 but there are not very many that pop to the top of the streaming services uh at, at least uh it's you're right it's pretty slim pickings on not so easy to forget yeah uh but to that end i i like that there's a song in it it fits the times you know movies were throwing those songs into noirs and things like casablanca like they had their songs in the films so it kind of fits the tone of all of that. And I like that it does feel like it's tying in to what we're getting with the story. So I think that works pretty well. I think so too. But you know, what's, what's more interesting about that to me is that you would think that it, it would, I, I think the reason it didn't attach to my brain as a musical entity is because for me, the, the sort of artifact of song is actually the sheet music like that's the more important part to the narrative which is the sheet music of the melody with the secret on or the receipt on the back um and so in in terms of you know what the song represents i i think i kind of ignored the music as just another set piece no i can see that and obviously you're right with the the uh, sheet music with the note written on the back obviously that comes into play as kind of a key plot point um even even if it does get burned up uh fairly quickly in the story but at least nick had seen it at least there's this conversation about it they know what it was and what it was for and it does tie into the plot so yeah and uh the fact that we're dealing with musicians in the story so all of it feels like a natural fit and uh and i liked it and we're back on the east coast again yes yes we are and we open on a boat SS Fortune, the gambling ship. The gambling, <laughs> gambling ship. <laughs> this is a hoity-toity, like an ahoy polloi kind of uh, gambling ship. Everybody's dressed to the nines, walking from table to table. It's a casino boat uh, hosted by uh, their benefactor, David Thayer. And uh, we meet Nick and Nora Charles sort of in in the middle of their uh, gambling event and they start exchanging wonderful quips and wandering about. Uh, and w- we start meeting some of the colorful characters uh, it, that are going to be with us on this journey. What'd you think of setting it, opening the the thing on a boat? I loved it. I loved that sense of a different space that we're in. You know, we're in a fairly confined place for the start of the film where we're meeting our characters all the way up through the crime. Really. It's, it was a nice way to kind of put everything into one space that still felt recognizable yet something we hadn't seen in this franchise yet. So I thought it worked pretty nicely. Yeah. And I like setting Nick kind of on, on sea legs, right? There are a couple of times where he's in the boat and 
down on the docks. And it's just an interesting setting to have this guy who's constantly, you know, dressed up in the suit, this, you know, all, all obviously of the, of the era wandering around on a dock trying to, you know, he throws his voice. He, he does, you know, as he's in, in part of his sneaking about and, and uh, his, his little bits of espionage. I think it is a great setting uh, to, to open this particular entree. Yeah, and again, just tying it into the time, I'm not sure when gambling ships like really came into their own, but uh, I don't know. It seems like when you're looking at a ship like this and and everybody is dressed to the nines, it seemed as I'm I'm doing a you know quick some research as we're having this conversation right now, and it really seemed in order to avoid a lot of these gambling bands and things like that that they were able to go out onto the boats and uh, they really use these ships the 20s through the 40s uh, peaking through the great depression which makes sense uh, you know you could get out onto the water and not have to worry about this the people that we're seeing on this little boat are all very well to do they're all in their nice outfits and everything i mean obviously it's nick who always knows criminal elements everywhere he goes but Nora always is kind of fits among the the hoity-toity and um, the the upper crust, and you definitely get a lot of that here on the boat. And so it definitely has that that vibe of a nice place for people to go where they can get away and do some gambling, where they're not going to get in trouble for it. Isn't it interesting as a just yet another artifact of the Hayes Code that you know we have we we open this movie with just open gambling. Uh, which which I, I thought was, you know, worth at least a note. Yeah, and I, I was actually thinking about that with this particular film because the Hayes Code obviously was still into effect very much. Um, you know, I think we talked about it early in this in the in this particular series where it was running into the late sixties, but it started weakening a lot in the fifties because of TV and other sorts of things with people fighting it. Uh, and then the MPAA, of course, came in after the fact. But it, I, I found that curious with this one because I was like, I wonder, there's definitely a lot more drinking in this one. I mean, you don't have Nick wandering around drunk or anything like that, which he was definitely doing in the early films. But there's there's a lot more drinking in this one. And so I, I was wondering if that, the gambling boat, like those sorts of things, was a little bit of them kind of pushing back, wanting to do something with a little more edge at the time, you know? That's exactly what it felt like to me, that this was, this was, uh, this movie represents an airing of grievances, <laughs> you know, that they're, they're frustrated by some of the limitations that were imposed on them on the Hays Code, and they're trying to say, look, we're gonna, we're gonna move as, as far as we can uh, against this particular set of investigation legislation, buffoonery and tell some stories that we want to tell. And I thought that was that was wonderful. Well, and, you know, a lot of this, the noir sensibilities, that whole crime story element that was really prominent in this period also was kind of pushing against the Hayes Code as well. And, and obviously, they still had to deal with it in their own way. But I think people were uh, enjoying these darker sorts of stories. And the fact that inevitably with these particular stories the thin man stories it's about a criminal who gets their comeuppance and so that element of it allows them to probably get away with some of this stuff you know well and and jumping to the end you had a note about how interesting it is in this particular movie how the the you know the bad guy gets that comeuppance in this movie which is unique right yeah this was the only one where the well and you know i guess we should start our spoiler horn now just so yeah. people oh, people know here it comes <laughs> uh yeah the the guilty party gets killed in this film instead of arrested not just killed but really killed really <laughs> like, so killed like she just uh, it's it's the um it's mitchell right yeah yeah mitch uh, mitch confesses and phyllis her husband her husband yeah she shoots him several times yeah because she had committed that she would kill whoever uh killed her lover yeah. and um she didn't know it was her husband and obviously she was involved in some other things like trying to pay off her uh pay off her lover's debt with this necklace and stuff like that but once once mitch confesses 
you know, she shoots him a lot, a number of times. Yeah. So that's, so yeah. Which actually is interesting also for the Hayes Code, because you'd think, I mean, yes, there is that sense of the guilty party has received his comeuppance, but at the same time, now she is also a killer. Is that okay in the eyes of the Hayes Code, or would they say, well, now she also has to be um, arrested because she should have let him get arrested by the police? Right. Yeah. I don't know. Right. I don't know. But it fits so perfectly with the tone of this film. Yeah. Uh, the movie at least is honest with itself. Correct, correct, correct. So we, we started, with the, we began at the end, but let's jump back to the beginning. How does the mystery set up? I mean, I really liked the mystery. I felt that the complexities of it worked in context of what they were setting up as far as, you know, why this guy was killed. He had this debt. Was it the people that he owed money to? The whole thing with the um, the jilted lover, like there was kind of a, a few different angles that we had going on to give us a lot of red herrings, which played really well. Uh, jealous bandmates, like there were a number of things um, that that worked for me. And even as the film progresses, you know, we get one bandmate who had had such a breakdown and kind of admitted to doing it, and it was in a in, in a sanitarium, but it was kind of pushed into that as we learn. And so they set up a lot of really interesting things with the story. I liked all the different characters and the way that the mystery unraveled and everything. And then by the time we got to the end, it is one of those ones where I felt everything did kind of line up well. And so I didn't have any issues with that. And that's what I always look for in these mystery films is by the time we get to the end. And we've had a an issue a time or two with some of these Thin Man films where it's like, well, that character, like I remember, I think it was uh, another thin man where there was the nanny who seemed very mysterious and then she kind of disappears after the murder and then reappears with like a really lame excuse right at the end of the film i'm like oh that just was like a red herring for red herring's sake i didn't feel like we had to do that here i just felt like everything really lined up nicely and by the time we get to the end i was very pleased with the way that the mystery unfolded and the way that nick solved it yeah, I think so too. I along the way, you know, the the it, it starts out he gets back on the the fortune, right? He takes his little boat. There's a bit of a a comedy bit as he's, you know, trying to negotiate transport over to the boat which is docked or which is anchored off the coast and and uh, but he gets there and he goes back into this boat which is now a crime scene from the the beginning and and meets the the rest of the band. And uh, and that starts his association with uh, Clinker, Clink, uh, Clarence Clinker Klaus, uh, <laughs> one of the musicians in the band, which ends up being a really funny uh, relationship uh, as they as they move about trying to to solve this thing. I love the the nature of the people that Nick gets to interact with. All of the, these colorful characters. I think that the film does a, a fantastic job of giving us these colorful characters to interact with that feel not shoehorned into the movie. They don't feel accidental. They don't feel like they're checking boxes. They feel like, oh, they're in the right place for this comedy in, you know, sort of procedural. And it fit really well, like these characters who were very much of kind of that jazz musician lounge act vibe that were all fairly youthful and they had a very specific way of talking. And that was a great thing to play off of Nick and Nora as far as they're a little older. They didn't know all these slang words that these <laughs> these youths, these band people were using. And so it was really funny seeing Nick and Nora trying to tap into the language, like as Clinker was taking them around at, to all like the essentially the after parties, like going to different clubs and and places and flats where the band would get together and just kind of sing until uh early hours of the morning and and listening to them trying to kind of tap into that was a great part of the comedy and just seeing nick uh, that example of uh was a perfect one where he is trying to kind of click with the band and so yeah i all of that stuff was a lot of fun to see how it played um it, consistently throughout the film the uh any the the standout performances right we we've got uh i mentioned keenan Wynn. it plays clarence clinker kraus um any, any other standout performances that you feel well, like are let's i mean let's just talk about keenan Wynn. 
yeah, let's talk about Keenan Wynn. Um, he was, I mean, are you a, are you a winhead? Well, I, I'm a winhead, but I'd say I'm probably more a winhead because of his dad, uh, Edwin, who, uh, is such a funny comedy actor with an unforgettable voice. Like his voice is just kind of like core from just early Disney films that I grew up with. I mean, he's Uncle Albert in Mary Poppins. He was uh, the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. Uh, He was in Babes in Toyland. Uh, You know, I mean, he's just, he has such a goofy voice that uh, he's just a fun character to see. And so uh, if I'm a windhead, it's because of Ed. But Keenan Wynn certainly is another face that you do kind of see a lot as you're looking at, you know, films from the forties into the, into the eighties, just kind of popping up in all sorts of different things. I don't know if there's a particular thing that I could say, Oh, I remember him from that, but I just, I just feel like I remember his face. Like, is there anything from him that you, uh, that you instantly call out? Well, no, I mean, he was in, he was in everything with everyone, but you know we talk about like you mentioned that face. Like he is one of those faces of the era, and was just in a ton of stuff. He was a contract player at MGM uh, through the forties and fifties, um, and you know was in movies with you name it. You know Clark Gable. Um, you know he did he did the Man in the Funny Suit with his his father. I haven't seen so many of those, and the things that I have seen. Uh, I I just recognize that face uh, very very clearly. I I get really excited when we meet these actors that um, who go by you know these names Keenan Wynn, but uh, have much bigger names. Do you? I mean, you're not looking. Are you looking at him right now? His full name? You're probably looking at it. No. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a heck of a name. Francis Xavier Aloysius James Jeremiah Keenan Wynn. That's extraordinary. That's like a name of royalty. That is very much a name of royalty. That is yeah. crazy. Just crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, he's he's been, he was around for a very long time in the business. And um, it, this was a, a fantastic role, uh, you know, as is oft reported, he's, he is a, a, a brilliant second man uh, in, in these kinds of movies. Well, I mean, and I mean, we've talked about him. We've talked about a number of films that he's been in, like Dr. Strangelove. Uh, he was Colonel Bacuano in that. Right. So there's um, a, a great bit of he's kind of the straight man in that particular scene um, with um, Peter Sellers when he's trying to get the he, he's at the base trying to get the information and stuff. Right. He was in stuff like the Americanization of Emily, which we haven't talked about, but it's a great uh, movie. Um, what was the other one that we did? Once Upon a Time in the West. He mm-hmm. plays uh, the sheriff auctioneer in that. He was in. Um, what was the other? One? Oh, Piranha. He ended up in Piranha uh, that we did in our uh, Aquatic Killers series. Right, um, and right. we didn't have this in our Aquatic Killers, but he was also in Orca, the movie about the killer whale. So, yeah, <laughs> so, big fan. Yeah. So he's, uh, yeah, he's a guy who just pops up a lot of things. And I enjoy him in this as this uh, jazz performer who uh, kind of is helping Nick out. So, for sure. Um, what about Dean Stockwell? So, I mean, he's not, he's not one of the, the bandmates, but little Dean Stockwell pops up in this. Yeah. Where did you first know Dean Stockwell from? I mean, is it, is it possible that it was? I have a feeling it's the same thing. Yeah. He was, he was jumping through time. Well, he was helping Scott Bakula jump through time. Okay, that's that's fair. In, in in quantum leap, he was the he was the tech who was like helping him, like you know, get everything put together. So that's yeah, that is likely where I first um, saw him and thought of him more as the guy from Quantum Leap. So when I saw Blue Velvet, I'd say, oh, he's the guy from Quantum Leap or Dune. Hey, there's the Quantum Leap guy again. Like, I think it always... he's always been the Quantum Leap guy. Yeah. And so it's funny, you like, you know, early in our our show, we did a series on uh, Richard DeZanik and the first film in that series um, ended up being, lo and behold, a young uh, Dean Stockwell film, Compulsion, that really surprised both of us and and dean stockwell was so young in that (laughs) it's like we're watching the early dean stockwell stuff without realizing that yeah he had been acting a long time before that too 
a long time. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, his first uh, credited role, the, the Valley of Decision, he played Pauly in 1945, which which so was early in his career. Yeah, nine, uh, years nine years old. But he had <laughs> that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine films before Song of the Thin End. That's already a, a career. Well, and what's interesting about him, I don't, I don't think I knew this about him. Uh, his whole family was very much an entertaining family. They were vaudevillians. His uh, dad was Harry Stockwell was in on Broadway productions of Carousel in Oklahoma, and he was the voice of Prince Charming in Snow White, Disney Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. Yeah. I just like something I never had realized, like exactly how prominent of a uh, a performing family he came from. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually, I mean, I knew of Harry Stockwell just in, as the legend in the theater and never made a, the connection that he was Dean Stockwell's father. I, I also never really made the connection that Dean Stockwell was a child actor, right? The, the fact that he transitioned from childhood performing to adult performing and had a successful career of it. I am not aware of any real struggles that so many child actors have in Dean Stockwell's history. Are you? Uh, I don't know if I had heard really any issues in his. Had you heard anything with him? According to his, you know, his bio, he dropped out of showbiz for a while in the 60s and became a hippie with Neil Young and Dennis Hopper. Does that really count dropping out of showbiz or just turning the corner on it? Um, <laughs> and and then, uh, you know, came back. He was... Um, that's where he came back in Psych Out in 1968, The Loners in 72, uh, in some psychedelic counterculture biker films, and then gets back in through guesting in things like Mannix and Columbo and Streets of San Francisco and Police Story, um, which, you know, I was not really watching his stuff at that point. So, uh, again, coming back to, you know, to his films, he, he ended up in, in uh, uh, Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas, and eventually um, Blue Velvet, Married to the Mob, and Quantum Leap, 1989, which, again, his entire career was lost to me as a kid. <laughs> I never knew any of that stuff and certainly wasn't interested in any of that stuff when I started watching him in Quantum Leap. Yeah, right, right. No, it's interesting to when you know somebody from a certain thing and then you realize they had this whole career, several careers pretty much before that. So, And, I, and I'm pretty sure... That by 1987's Air Force One, I was excited to be able to say, that's the Quantum Leap guy that <laughs> I've been watching. Right, right, so. right. And he's great in this as uh, the son, Nick Jr., a little bit older than we had seen him in uh, previous films. And here, like, he's got a little bit of uh, banter that he has with Nick. Like, he plays that well. And so I, I thought he fit perfectly for this for this franchise. I did too. The the other credit I I just want to call out before we move completely on from him is uh, he was in 15 episodes of Battlestar Galactica, the 2004 reboot, and he was awesome in that show. And I just know after we go down this litany of all of his credits, if we don't mention Battlestar Galactica, we're going to uh, we're going to be called out. What's for that. crazy? Well, I don't know if we'll be called out, but what's funny about that is uh, I'll be called out for this. Like I don't remember him in the show. Who is he in that? Well, he wasn't in very many. I mean, it's of, of its like 74 episode run, he's in just a, a few of them. Um, but uh, he was the like a, a Cylon ambassador. Hmm. Right. Okay. Um, oh, and, yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. you know, coming, talking about coming, like, yeah, it's coming to me. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway, love that show so very much. Yes, yes, yes. Speaking of performers, we also have a repeat, which is interesting. And we've had it in the past in this franchise, but this is the first time we're having somebody so fresh. Uh, we just had Leon Ames in The Thin Man Goes Home. He played in that film, Edgar Drack, one of the pair of husband and wife who were trying to buy the painting mm -hmm. um, so that they could sell it to their person. And he was, you know, not telling his wife how much he sold there. Here's a whole thing in that last film. Leon Ames pops up as Edgar Drack in The Thin Man Goes Home. And in this film, he shows up again. But here, he is our killer. He's Mitch Talbin, and uh, who ends up getting killed by his wife, Phyllis. And what's interesting 
that this particular the intentions apparently were to bring back the pair from the thin man goes home they were going to have leon reprise his role as edgar drack and along with helen vinson as his wife but she wasn't available and so they ended up changing the drax to the talbans and so leon ended up going from the role of edgar drack to the role of of mitchell talban and so it was kind of a strange little surprise to have the same actor from one film to the next playing a different character in the series in back-to-back uh entries and so an interesting little uh tidbit as far as his casting of the film uh, completely i'm trying to look for because i i obviously i remember him in the last movie but i don't even think they did much to change his look like he looks a little bit more mature in this movie he has but i think he has the same mustache is that possible i feel like it, that i feel like the mustache doesn't actually come off of his face like it just seems like that is his face <laughs> yeah, with the mustache like every face. time i've seen him like meet me in st louis same thing he just he has that as part of his look yeah interesting did you, I mean, did you notice when we were watching the movie, did you notice, oh, I, that's the guy from, I mean, we just watched the, <laughs> the yeah. movie. No, but I think, like, I I see so many of these faces in the films that I, I think I'm just, like, looking at them all as, you know, just faces. They all kind of start blending together because I'm, I'm seeing them all playing out so often yeah, in the movies. I'm not sure what Helen Vincent was doing. Uh, at the at the time where she couldn't do this because uh, you know I wonder I'm wondering if she was doing Broadway or something because her film career stops with the Thin Man Goes Home she does not do another film afterward and so it makes me wonder what was she doing where she uh, was busy and couldn't or wouldn't perform in the film you know yeah right. Uh, did you uh, do you have any other n- notes on Leon Ames, uh, your favorite films of Leon Ames? I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff. Oh, well, I, I, like I said, Meet Me in St. Louis is always kind of my go to with so many of these people that we've been seeing in these just because I um, I think that's just a kind of a family favorite as far as one of our mm-hmm. uh, favorite musicals. Uh, he's he's a person who's been in a lot of movies so i i don't know if i have something else that is a favorite but i think of like when i look at the list i'm like oh yeah peggy sue got married he was in that and that was his final film role things like that uh it's pretty interesting to see him with such a wide swath from the 30s all the way into the 80s yeah i think that's it for me i mean i think there are so many movies like 30 seconds over tokyo and uh, things like that where i know he i now know he was in it but i was not um, paying enough attention at the time um to to make to recognize his face yeah he's not one of those faces that really stands out he stands out as a you know middle-aged white guy with a you know with the mustache yeah there's there is kind of this certain um sense of that um you know upper crust element that fits with him in this era so I guess to that end, like I do see some of that with him in some of the things that he was in, but, and then there's like some noir things like he was in the postman always rings twice and lady in the lake. And so there are films that I definitely, when I see his face, I can recall from them. But to your point, there are a lot of times where I'm like, Oh, he was in that too. I don't remember him in that, but you know, obviously he was, he worked well for it. This is, is hot on your list. So as far as other performances we should talk about the women a little bit of course uh, gloria graham already mentioned as one of our women that we have in this film she plays fran page the singer with this band and uh, then we also have patricia morrison playing phyllis uh two of our our principal women and they're you know Jan- jane meadows plays janet thayer um obviously an important character in the film too but i mean uh, you know thoughts on our leading ladies and how they play other than obviously Nora. Yeah. I, I, you know, uh, uh, functional. I think I, I really, you know, I like Gloria Graham uh, so much and just even the way she handles herself in this movie, there's a lot of elegance. There's a lot of, of, of um, smarts. I feel like the movie is, I, I feel like the movie is really, you know, still um, around, you know, for me, I'm just paying so much more attention to Myrna Loy um, that, uh, you know, I don't I don't look at, you know, anybody with that much more sophistication because I feel like Myrtle steals it. 
Yeah, um, I, I definitely, I mean, Gloria Graham, I just always enjoy. I think, you know, she's an interesting character in this film and, and she plays, you know, her character fits in as one of those characters that like, is she a potential red herring? Could she, or could she have done it and then ends up dead? And so there are, uh, we've had those sorts of characters too. And so, you know, it, it works well. Uh, in the context of the film, I, I hate seeing her character get killed because I love Gloria Graham, but she works well with what they're doing here. So I like her. And I do like I do like Phyllis, like Patricia Morrison, I thought played Phyllis great, like the the necklace that she was wearing and then wasn't wearing and what's going on. And, you know, the time when it's like Nick meets them because he finds this necklace at her feet, which clearly she had put there as a way to kind of pass it off to pay the debt of her lover. And then Nick gives it to her. He's like, oh, I think you dropped something. And she's like, oh, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. And that's how they meet. And and so it was a kind of a fun way into the that whole thing. And so I kind of liked that bit with her. And and then building up to the end when she totally uh, just you know, unravels, unravels. Like, I, I just enjoyed her character quite a bit in context of the film. And we don't see her a lot. But when we have her, I just thought she did a great job with it. Well, and I think that's the sneaky part. And I mean, it's after that initial bit when Charles hands over Brant, you know, at, at it's right about 20 minutes that the game is afoot. And she's, you know, very upset because it's it's set up as such a grotesque betrayal that, you know, they would come to Nick as a as a, you know, as somebody who could help them, who could help them, you know, clear up this horrible misunderstanding. And and, you know, Nick betrays him and sends him off to to jail uh all what we later find out very shortly thereafter is that it was part of his plan all along because he's going to be safer in the in the slammer but we we get to see you know the the women react to that react to to being betrayed by the their one the guy who they once thought was their hero and i think that's very good yeah yeah it, no it works really well so yeah i, I the characters i think all worked the actors were great I I don't feel like I had the uh the same sort of like fun criminal element in this one that Nick is buddy buddy with. I'm trying to remember was there one that uh, that he kind of like his his circle? I I think we did have a meeting that I didn't write down uh of of a crook in, on the boat uh that was working there or something. That old saw. Yeah, cuz I, I I feel like there's something like that. I feel like Instead of instead of playing that class element up between Nick and Nora and Nick's relationship with crime and criminals and Nora and the more well-to-dos, I felt like more of the game this time was Nick and Nora as the older people having to tap into the world of the youth and, you know, groovy man, all that. Right, right. So funny. So, so funny. So, yeah, let's talk about Asta. So, Asta's back, but not credited this time, which you had called out a few times, making us wonder, In as we were having our last few episodes, is Asta going to be in this one or not? Because the dog that was in most of the other movies was the same dog. They they played with the dogs, but it, it the fact that the dog wasn't credited did make us think that there wasn't going to be a dog at, at all. And, in fact, there was a dog. Asta was still... Uh, very much a character, a part of, you know, part of the story, not as big a part of the story as in some other movies, but um, certainly had his his little begging, you know, uh, front paw behavior that we've seen in the past. It's funny and cute. And that stuff was very good, but it was just not the same dog. And the fact that they they diminished the role of the dog by not giving it a credit, I thought was really interesting. The dog was so central to the rest of the movies. It was an interesting element to completely drop asta from the credits and the only reason that i could kind of assume that they had done it was that it was a different dog this time it was skippy had been the dog playing asta in the thin man after the thin man another thin man shadow the thin man and then in the thin man goes home our last one that was skippy's successor and Song of the Thin Man was also Skippy's successor, but I, I'm not actually sure. I'm trying to look and see. I think, did we find the dog's name last time? The the one who uh, took over? 
It just says other terriers trained by the Weatherwax family and by Frank Inn took on the role in subsequent films of the series and in the television show. Yeah. But in every case, it always has been credited as Asta, never as Skippy. And so it's interesting, like, we're just at this point where they're just not even mentioning the fact and the dog is there, but it's not a huge role. I mean, you know, Nick kind of is he his excuse to get onto the boat is he's out walking his dog and then he sneaks on. So, I mean, he's he still is part of the story, but not treated in a way where uh, is getting any credit. So it was, it was kind of interesting. Do you think that, I mean, uh, kind of a transition into um, the fact that the major is no longer with us and for this movie, and it's directed by Edward Bazell. And you kind of, it feels like this might be just a decision of temperament, like directorial temperament. Like, yeah, that was cute. And I'm making a different movie. Maybe uh, what's interesting about that though, is obviously Asta was a part of the book. And so it was kind yes. of a core element, but to your, to your point, like maybe by this point they said, I'd rather like, maybe the filmmakers said, maybe we'd rather focus on Nick and Nora Charles and the crime than on, you know, having to point out the fact that, Hey, we have this dog in the film. Yeah. Right. Like this isn't an animal picture. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and, and it feels it feels like that. I, I get that tone from the from the film and from the you know it, all the things that I really celebrate that they were able to capture from the first set of movies. The fact that they they dump the principal credit of the dog doesn't really you know I find it doesn't really bug me. As cute as I thought the dog was in the last movies, it doesn't really bug me. Yeah, that's um, no, fine. Yeah, but but it does give us a chance to talk about Edward Brazell and things that um, that Brazell has has changed um, or uh, taken on? Are you a, a big fan of Edward Bazell? Are you, are, did you know his top four before you looked him up? Well, I guess that's the thing. Edward Bazell, who started out as uh, an actor and then shortly after that moved into directing. Uh, but you look at the films that Edward Bazell has been a part of. And uh, I mean, I'm familiar with his work because of things like the Marx Brothers. Outside of that, though, I don't know if I have seen anything of his or really know of anything of his. I didn't either. I feel like I I probably have heard his his name in passing, but he didn't in the in the era of contract performers and directors. Uh, he has a relatively small number to of directorial. He's only an actor in nine films credited and forty two uh, as director uh, through nineteen sixty one and ain't misbehaving is is probably the biggest one and i wasn't paying much attention to who was directing it when i saw it yeah that's what i still haven't seen so i am familiar with it mainly because of the song but i've never seen it so yeah so um but it, it's it kind of surprising because i enjoyed how he handled this movie i thought it was it, it looked good it was lit well the 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 like house sets the boast sets all looked great uh, I loved moving through the spaces with these characters. Um, I thought it was a, a, a competent film. Well, and, you know, I, I think in, in the scope of a director, a studio director, I mean, he was directing with MGM and was probably brought on to this because, you know, he uh, fit what they were looking for. And so, yeah, they said, hey, that's perfect. Let's let's have him do it. And, you know, he it worked. I mean, I liked what he was doing here. It had the darkness. It had the the comedy. And I think he I think he was a, a great person to uh, to helm it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I feel like this was a great experience. I really enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed the movie. And it was a, a really fantastic way to kind of wrap things up with Nick and Nora Charles. For sure. Yeah. All right, well, we'll be right back, but first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Mark Yancheski, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.
this is the last of the movies, but not the last of the Charleses. That is correct. Yeah, Nick and Nora Charles, they were so popular uh, because of the films. I mean, obviously, there was the book, which uh, spawned some popularity, but really, it's the movies that took off because of Powell and Loy. There was a radio show, The Adventures of the Thin Man, that ran from 41 to 1950. There was a TV show that ran for two seasons from 57 to 59. Um, there was a TV movie in 1975 uh, called Just Nick and Nora. There was a stage musical in 1991, Nick and Nora. There was a stage play There is uh, in 2009, again, 2018. The Thrilling Adventure Hour did a stage show um, where the two people were characters named Frank and Sadie Doyle. There were parodies in Nick and Nora. In 2011, they actually started talking about re- uh, rebooting this franchise with Johnny Depp as Nick Charles. That ended up getting shelved. And then we've talked about it already, but in 1976, the film Murder by Death, they were spoofed as uh, Dick and Dora Charleston. They had to do at awards season. Uh, well, for the last film in the franchise, nothing. Just like the previous ones, this is another one that, you know, it was released as a film that was a good time, it was fun, but I don't think anyone was looking at these films by this point as award films. All right, well, at least we get to talk about the budget. Oh, yes, we do. How to do the box office. Yeah, for the last film in the franchise, uh, one last time I will send my gratitude out to Eddie Mannix and his ledgers. Gotta love him. This movie, the second not directed by W.S. Van Dyke, cost $1.7 million to make. That is nearly $19.2 million in today's dollars. The movie opened August 28, 1947 and went on to earn $2.3 million or $26.5 million in today's dollars. Now, I did find that somewhere else it says MGM actually lost $128,000 on this movie. But I had also found out that it had earned $2.3 million. So I'm not sure where the line is. Did they lose money? Was there marketing involved that ended up costing them the money? Or did it make its money back? I don't know. I'm just going to go with the fact saying it made its profit eventually. But even with all that, it still ends up being the least profitable of the franchise. Still, an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $85,000. I prefer to to go glass half full. I, I think it it, it made money because karmically it should have made money. It was a good movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, it could have been at the time the audience for Nick and Nora Charles was growing smaller and smaller. They were kind of, while the studio wanted to keep cranking them out, it, this happens with franchises. They hit this point where it's a, it, it's a, the return on investment dwindles with each film, the subsequent film. And so they get this, get to this point where like, well, I think we're just wrapping up now. But uh, to your point, it still was a great film. I'm really glad that we talked about this uh, franchise because I had such a fun time walking through all of these films. Me too. It was just delightful. And uh, I, I count this whole series as a huge win. 100%. 100%. Anytime I get to see uh, William Pell and Myrna Loy working so well together, it is just a delight. For sure. All right, well, we will be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Anurag Kashyap's Gangs of Wasipur, Part 1. Sardar Khan naam hai hamara. Bata dijiye ga sabko. Uske muh mein taar dal ke gaon se nikal ke isi plant pe patang na udai to humara naam hai. Chiya ho Bihar ke lala. Hai chiya tu hazaari पहचाने हमें रामादी विधायक है अरे जिया तू हजार साल 
तुम्हारे बेटे दानिश को कुछ हो जाता ना इतना गोली मारते कि आपका ड्राइवर भी खाली खोखा बेच बेच के रईस बन जाता से पूरा है यहाँ कबूतर भी एक पंख से उड़ता है और दूसरे से अपना इज्जत बचाता है समझ गए मजा आ रहा है मजा आ रहा है सुन के बताओ मंत्री जी नाश्ता में क्या खाए हैं जोरू का मां उस हरामी को हमें मिटाना है बटरबॉक्स डैंडी You can use the discount code of NEXTREAL or just visit thenextreal.com slash letterbox to sign up. You can get 20% off your pro or Patreon upgrade. Uh, what are you going to do with this one? This has been, I know you've been really, this has been a hand-wringing decision for you. <laughs> uh, this franchise is a big success um, for, for me. I, I had a wonderful time with it. I think it's been, I think, let's see, I started uh, with... The Thin Man at three and a half, and then I was at four, and then three, and then three, and then four, and then I think last week was also four. I feel like this is a real high note for the thing. I might go four and a half. I think I, I think that's where I'm going to sit with this one. Four and a half stars. That seems exuberant, like so exuberant, not to give it that last nudge <laughs> of that half star fall. I think I'm. I, I think I'm going to land at, uh, you know, I'm uh, Pete, no half stars, right? I think I'm going to land at four stars. But I do think there's room on revisiting these movies to to make this possibly my favorite of the set. I, I had a, a great deal of fun uh, with this movie. So I, I think there's some real high notes, two real high notes in the first set and this one in the second set of three uh, movies uh, that uh, I think is a huge win. So. Yeah, four stars, definitely a throbbing, beating heart uh, for the Song of the Thin Man. Fantastic. Well, that will land it with four and a quarter uh, when we average it out, which will round up to four and a half when we put it over in our Letterboxd account. Don't forget, visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And remember, we have our own membership. You can learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership. All of our episodes uh, are ad-free. You get bonus content at the start and end of some of the episodes. We have all sorts of bonus episodes, member bonus each month, etc. All sorts of great stuff. So learn it more at thenextreel.com slash membership. So what did you think about Song of the Thin Man? We would love to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth Andrew, as Letterbox always doeth. I have I have a review <laughs> that talks about one thing that we absolutely didn't talk about in our conversation. And I can't believe it, because we watched this movie together, and when it happened, we laughed out loud. And <laughs> we didn't mention a thing about it in the principal conversation. Oh, no. And now, now you know I'm, I'm forgetting. What, what, uh, who, wait, whose review are you doing? Uh, I, have, I have just a pleasant review from Elise. Oh, okay. Why don't you do Elise? And then you, while you're reading Elise you can think about what I might be referring to. Don't, don't like, check, because I know you're really curious. I am very curious. Um, mine is by Elise, who gave it five stars and just has this wonderful sentiment. No man will ever love his wife the way Nick loves Nora. And yes, I am crying right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was good. Are you ready to be blown away by the thing you aren't remembering? I'm ready. I am ready. This is a three and a half star from Ely. How how deep into the movie is it? Let me try to think on this. 
is pretty early. <laughs> pretty early in the movie. And let me just say, poor Dean Stockwell. Poor Dean Stockwell. <laughs> I'm just going to read it. Stop. Okay, just read Stop it. Okay, doing. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Ely says, I think all movies should contain a scene where a father stares at his son's ass and vividly hallucinates flashbacks of their life together just before he spanks his son with a newspaper as punishment for neglecting his piano lessons. (laughs) How did we forget that? (laughs) That was one of the funniest things I had ever seen. It was exceptional filmmaking. It was great. Exceptional Filmmaking, Mr. Bazell. (laughs) Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>